Welcome to the Graceway Bible Church Podcast, a place to be immersed in teachings from God's Word. We hope you will be blessed by the Word of God as we discover together what our Heavenly Father wants us to understand. If you would like more information about our church, how to know Jesus as your Savior, or teachings from the Bible, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org. Join us now as we dive into God's Word. Let's go before the Lord together, can we? Lord, I know that uh, some people are feeling rather um, challenged today in various ways, uh, and just feeling the burden of life. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would um, relieve that burden today, that just the presence of worshiping together like we are today is just is such a, a beautiful thing for our hearts. And we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives that just transforms us and grows us and provides for a supernatural power to deal with the challenges of life. So we ask for your grace today. As we open your word, Lord, continue to um, share those things in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are seven feasts listed in Leviticus that were given to the people of Israel, and they really determined their calendar, their, their, their time frame. They would be looking forward to the next feast. Each one of these feasts are important. In fact, if you look at all of the feasts, you'll see that they, as they roll out, they portray the redemptive plan of God, His majesty, His creation, the fall, the need for redemption and atonement, the, uh, the work of Christ, the... Um, sanctification process, the joy that we experience, all are built into the feast year for the Jewish people. We also can look at the feasts and use them to help us determine the timeline of Jesus' life. The three or three and a half years of his public ministry, we can tell about where he is in each one of the Gospels because they mention the feast days, and we can kind of then plot those on the calendar and see where we are in the schedule. There were three particular feasts that were the major feasts. I don't know if I should say they're the major feasts, or they were just really important because they were expected, it was expected that the men from all around Israel would come to uh, Jerusalem, and if they could, even from other parts of the world, would come up for the feast days, these three feast days. All of them were very important days. In fact, what's very interesting about Jesus coming is he transformed those feast days in some amazing way. So now we look back on those feast days, we see something completely different. For example, you know Passover. Passover was that special feast that the Israelites celebrated because there was blood placed on the doorpost and the death angel passed over those people and they were rescued out of Egypt. And they looked back on this, thank you, Lord, for redeeming us and rescuing us by your blood. When you saw the blood, you passed over. The death angel passed over those families. And when Jesus Christ came, he died on Passover to be our sacrifice, our atoning sacrifice, so that when, when God sees the blood, we then experience the righteousness of Christ. The whole Passover celebration is transformed because of Jesus coming. 
Fifty days later, there's another feast, another one of the major feasts where all of the men, and they would bring their families because this, is, this was a special time to come together, a, a ceremonial experience, one of these times when you're just celebrating with all kinds of parades and activities and so on. Even the, going up to the feast, going up to Jerusalem, which is up on a mountain, they had certain songs that they would sing. They were called Psalms of Ascent. We have them in God's Word. And people would sing these psalms of ascent on their way up. It was just a beautiful experience. The Feast of Weeks, which happens seven weeks and a day, uh, 50 days, or Penta, which means 50. Pentecost takes place 50 days after Passover. And, of course, uh, this was the Feast of Harvest. This was the celebration that the wheat harvest has come in. And Lord, thank you for the bountiful harvest you've given. And we're grateful for all the things you're going to do as you continue to bless our world. We're grateful. That's how the Jews celebrated uh, Pentecost. But God chose this day to bring down the Holy Spirit on people. And on that day, the harvest of 3,000 people were saved and the power of the Holy Spirit came down, and it began this harvest that took place all around the world. This feast day of Pentecost now has changed in our minds. As we look back on it, we say, wow, that is big. The third feast is the Feast of Booths. And that's the feast we're going to look at today because Jesus stands up on that day, and he proclaims something very important, and he actually changes that day. As he looks at, the, uh, at that feast, at that celebration, he changes that day and what it is. In fact, I'm going to have you today, in just a moment, look at the, the verses starting in verse 37 of chapter 7. We're going to look at the whole passage today. But starting in verse 37, we have what Jesus does on that day in the feast. We want to talk about that. Would you please stand with me as we read, starting in verse 37, and then we'll Go back to the beginning of the chapter. But this is what happened on the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of, the, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I think we're going to learn today how we can have higher and deeper experience with Jesus because of the Spirit of God. That's what's prophesied here by Jesus. That's what takes place. It transforms this whole feast. You may be seated. Let's dig in. Verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's my favorite of the feast. It's the camping feast. This lasts for eight days. And what would happen during this feast is that all the families would build these booths. Or individuals would build these booths. These booths were like little lean-tos that were tied up nicely and decorated in a special way. You can imagine you're getting your kids out, and let's build it special this year, always leaving holes in the ceiling of the booth, in the roof, so that you could see the stars... Because this was a time to tell the kids the stories. All the stories about how God rescued them from the, the Israelites and then they wandered around in the wilderness and lived in booths and were so thankful for all the provision of God. That is the feast that we're talking about in verse 2. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one 
works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. His brothers didn't believe in him yet. One of his brother's names was James. He wrote a book of the Bible. He introduces himself as the servant of Jesus Christ because he comes to know Christ in a personal way as a servant of Jesus Christ later. But now in the story, he doesn't recognize who Jesus is. Another one of his brothers is Jude. He also wrote a book of the Bible. He introduces himself in his book as the brother of James and the servant of Jesus Christ. He got to know Jesus in a completely different way, not just as a brother, but as a servant. But at this point in our story, the boys didn't really know much about their brother. They saw that he was, had these powers that he had and, and that he was gathering a following, so they had some ideas about marketing that they wanted to share with him. I got some good idea for you, Jesus. I want you to go and market yourself. Go down there. The feast is there. I mean, all the people will be there. What a great time to show your stuff. You'll get more followers that way. It'll be great. It always amazes me. These guys don't understand Jesus and his mission. It amazes me. People don't understand the church and its mission many times. You know, we get calls at the church uh, or emails about people. They want to tell us how we can grow the church. You know, they want to come and do a seminar on their the latest health ideas or the exercise ideas or financial ideas they have so that we can get more members. That's how they try to market it to us. We can help you get more members in your church uh, by having one of these seminars uh, that you'll put on. I always smile because I know, you know, they really don't understand the church. That people aren't just coming to church for all these kind of things that are going on. They, they really come because there's something inside of their hearts they're looking for. We don't need to market the church. One man came to us, there was a, um, and I don't want to put this man down. He's growing in his relationship with the Lord. He's coming to church. And uh, he said to me, uh, after one service, he said, I can tell you how you can get more money uh, on, on church on Sunday, he said. He said, what you should do, your teaching is really good. You should take the collection after you teach because then people want to give more money. And I, th I said, thank you for your idea. But, uh, you know, the, the reality is, and I explained this to him, people don't give based on the, the performance of the preacher. They don't give based on the, the uh, things that are going. They give because of something that's inside of their hearts. You see, we don't have to market the church. You know what? We don't have to market the church. We don't have to market the church because he's done the marketing. You know, he's already put something in every person's heart. Every person out there has something in their heart, this longing for Jesus. They don't know it sometimes. They don't know what they're looking for, but they're really looking for Jesus. And some people suppress it and, and are interested right now, but we go out and we just share the gospel with people. We tell them, here's what it is. And some people say, that's it. That's what I need. It's already built into the whole system. The same thing's true when, when they become a Christian. They say, i got to find a church. And so we get the word out. We tell people we have a church, but we don't have to do a lot of marketing because it's already built into people's lives. they got to go find a church. They're looking for that. And it's just part of who we are that we want to experience God's grace, and there's so much blessing that comes from being a part of a church. These guys don't get that. They don't understand it. And so Jesus' response to them is that my time has not yet come. Now, he, this idea of the timing is important. We are six months away. We know that because this is the Feast of Booths just before the Feast of Passover when Jesus will be crucified. So we're about six months away from the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus knows that there's this master plan, this large timeline that's going forward, and he says, my time hasn't come yet. He knows that. 
because we're moving in this direction, and we're going to see from now until the crucifixion the animosity of the Jewish leaders increasing. We're going to see the confusion of the crowds and, uh, increasing. We're going to see those things taking place as we're getting closer to uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at Passover. Verse 7, Jesus wants to explain a little bit more about why people have this animosity. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I don't think that's a very good marketing strategy if you're trying to get more followers. In fact, the world has this whole uh, idea of us as people that basically you're a good person. You just need to find the good within you. And when you find the good within you, you want to accentuate that and be all that you can be. That's the world's idea, and, and sometimes that creeps into the church. Uh, we need to be careful of that worldly idea because the reality is when you look inside, you see evil. You see the fact that you're a sinner. That's where the gospel starts, and you really need for a Savior. And so, frankly, people don't like that message until they are honest with themselves and they say, you know what? I do have a lot of stuff in there. I've got sin in my life. I do need a Savior. And then the message just clicks for them. They say, yes, this is exactly what I need. But Jesus is saying they hate me because I tell them that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, you guys. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. So I'm not going to follow your plan of marketing. The timing isn't right for me to do that. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but private. So he does go up to the feast, but he does it in a more private manner. He just goes up to the feast as one of the people that's going up there. And it says in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. Why would they be looking for him? Because every good Jewish male shows up at the feast. He's got to be here. Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. There are people like that today. You know, he's a good man, which is an understatement, or he's not a good man. You know, there's this idea that the people are confused about Jesus. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There's this kind of oppression of the leadership. They want to be really careful about what they say so they aren't uh, punished or somehow uh, cast out of the synagogue or something like that. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast. Now, this feast is an eight-day feast, and there are ceremonies going on throughout the feast. But during the feast, the temple is an open place. It's 35 acres about, and there are these porticos, large porches where the rabbis would sit and they would teach. It don't, don't imagine it being like a church like this where Jesus came in and taught. Imagine it being this big open area, and Jesus starts teaching up there, and he's talking about, well, we'll see what he's talking about, and people are starting to listen to what he has to say. 15, the, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. He did not study under any of the Ivy League schools that we know about. Yet look at his teaching. It's amazing. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that he comes from the Father, and he speaks with the authority of God the Father. 
They're going to learn this over the next few months, and the more they see it, the more angry they become about this. And Jesus is going to continually challenge these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. In fact, in the next verse, he's going to start challenging them about the Mosaic Law. In fact, two parts of the Mosaic Law. One is uh, that you shall not kill, and the other is you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. He's going to show them that they're violating the law of God in their own way, and they're not consistent with the Sabbath day. Let's just read it and see what he says. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? See, if, if uh, you're seeking to kill me, then you're violating one of the Ten Commandments. The crowd answered, you have a demon. It's their way of saying, you're crazy. Who is seeking to kill you? So Jesus goes to the second part of the story. He answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Now this takes us back to the story in John chapter 5. When Jesus healed a man, and the man picked up his pallet, and he could walk for the first time. It's just an amazing miracle that Jesus did. Here this guy could walk. And he, he's just, the people are so excited to see this guy walk. And he, but he, the fact is, it happened on the Sabbath day, and this guy's carrying his mat, which was a no-no, according to the law. And Jesus said, I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So circumcision needed to take place on the eighth day. So when a baby was born, you couldn't actually plan these days off, right, ladies? So uh, the baby's born, and eight days later, then you need to have this uh, circumcision take place. So you guys circumcise a man on the Sabbath. But if, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, whole, a man's whole body well? Not just one piece of a man. I, I fixed his whole body, and you're angry with me because I did it on the Sabbath. He's just showing them their inconsistencies and, and how they're making judgments about Jesus that are unfounded, ungrounded. And, uh, and, and I think there's, we, we look at that and we say, this is silly. They're obviously making errors, but we looking at it from our perspective, we're not there in the story. The next words Jesus say are the conclusion. I think we need this. I need it in my life. He says, do not judge by appearance but judge with right judgment. I think this verse needs to stand next to the one in the Sermon on the Mount which says, do not judge lest you be judged, right? I mean, that's what people who are not believers, often that's the verse in the Bible they know. Don't judge lest you be judged. But notice this verse is um, giving us a little bit more information about judging. I think we did a theology of, of judging. We would learn some valuable things about this tool that God has given to us. It's the word krino means to divide or separate. To judge something means that you're, you're making a decision about it. And it's a tool that all of us have, but we have to be careful how we use this tool. We have to use it very carefully because it can be misused. And in this case, they're making judgments about Jesus, and they don't even understand what's going on. I think today we must be careful with this tool that we have of judging. We have to be careful about judging each other because we don't really know what's going on in that person's heart. We have to be careful about that. At the same time, we have to be careful about judging other churches or movements or Christian leaders or whatever. We have to be careful about our judgments. We have a responsibility to judge, and he says, um, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There's a certain kind of judgment you want to have. You're dividing. Here's the danger. If you're not careful, you're Judgment can lend you to be a critical person. There's some people that are finding fault with everything you turn around. That 
is not helpful, and that person becomes a critical person. But the person who doesn't then judge at all becomes a person who's tolerant of everything. And there's a danger there, of course. We must have a right kind of judgment that's presented here. We all must be careful of that in our lives. And we're going to see that people are making these, these judgments about Jesus that fall into two error, errors, I think. And, and I want to be careful. Okay, I'm a religious leader. That's what I'm imagining. I'm a religious leader, and I can put myself in the story here. You're a religious leader. Put yourself in the story and imagine you judging because they make judgments about things like, um, well, you know, you, you say that you're going to eat. We want you, you want us to eat your bread, your body, and drink your blood. And so they're thinking, this guy's cannibalistic. And so they're developing that conclusion. Or Jesus says that he's developing this kingdom, and so they're saying, he says he's the king of the Jews. Well, there's some truth to that, but there, there are these two errors I think we fall into. One is ignorance. We don't know the whole story of what's going on. And the other is arrogance, this kind of spiritual arrogance, because we all like to hear a juicy story, don't we? And when we see a, a, a choice morsel of information, and we go, whoa, I can hardly wait to tell the people what I just discovered about that person, there's an arrogance that we have. And Jesus is drawing attention to a very important principle in our lives that we need to have a right kind of a judgment, a judgment that is clear about sin, but also involves a sense of love and, and value and, and recognizing we don't know all the facts. And we have to all have this balanced carefully. And they're going to make some mistakes here. Jesus is drawing attention to that. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This comes from this, um, there was a superstition at that time, a belief about uh, the Messiah and the Christ. When he comes, he will just appear on the scene. Nobody will know where he's come from. So some people believe that, and that's what this is referencing. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. So he's drawing attention to the fact that God the Father has sent him here, and this is big. In fact, he says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because, why? Because the timing wasn't right. His hour had not yet come. God has this overarching plan uh, that's going to lead to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Passover. We are not there yet. We can't start those wheels in motion yet, and, and, uh, and Jesus knew that. And John knows that. He's writing this uh, commentary here, and he says, the time has not yet come. But look at verse 31. I underlined it. Yet many of the people believed in him. I underlined it for this reason. The animosity is growing in Jerusalem and in Israel. The animosity toward Christ is growing. And as it grows, you might think that fewer people would come to Jesus. But the reality is that every one of us has something inside of our hearts. We all do. 
And because of that thing inside of our hearts, we are drawn to Christ. So the more we understand and the more we grapple with our own lives and who we are, we know we need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And so that's what's taking place here. People are believing in him. The same thing is true in our world today. There's growing animosity toward Christianity. There's growing um, antagonism toward Jesus Christ, to the lifestyle that we, that we proclaim, that, to the message of righteousness that we hold on to. There's growing animosity, and you would think that as people laugh at us or they um, ostracize us, that more and more people would be moving away from Christianity, but the, real, uh, but the reality is that it draws attention to that need that exists in every person, and that's why even when things get worse, people will seek Jesus Christ because He is the truth, He is the way, and He is the life. Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. In other words, he said, this is enough. Get the police department out here. We're going to send these guys out and go get Jesus. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This was confusing for the people. And so they say, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The Jews had been dispersed all over the world. Is Jesus going to go to one of those other places and teach the the Jews in in Greece, for example? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now we come to my favorite part of this chapter. You can divide the chapter, this John chapter 7, into three parts. The first verses 1 to 10 are all about before the feast. Verses 10 to 39 are at the feast, and verses 40 to the end of the chapter, 52, are after the feast. But here we're at the feast now. And it says, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, let me explain to you where we are in the feast and what takes place on that day. Because every day of the seven or the eight days, there's a, a celebration, there's a ceremony of sorts that people are eager to watch. Every day of the eight days, the priest would take his golden um, pitcher and he would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would fill it up and with a procession would come back up to the altar and he would pour this water out on the altar and people would just be so grateful. They would actually sing these psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are these psalms. We have them in our Bible. And they would sing these psalms out to the Lord. And they would make this statement from Isaiah, this one phrase from Isaiah. They'd make this statement, and then, then uh, the celebration would be over for that day, and people would go on their way, waiting for the next day. And every day they would have this celebration. But on the last day, the great day, the grand finale of the, of the feast, people would be there waiting and watching and, and looking for what was going to happen. They're all excited because this is the last day of the feast. The priest would take the golden pitcher, and he would go down to the pool of Siloam, and he would fill it up, and he would bring it back, and he would pour it on the altar while another priest poured wine also on the altar, symbolizing, of course, this is the feast, recognizing that Jesus, uh, that the, the Father rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. They 
uh, went around in the wilderness, lived under booths, and God provided water for them, water from the rock. They provided provisions for them all through life. And now what they're looking at in this celebration is they're pouring it on the altar, recognizing that it's this water that, uh, that's being poured out on the altar that will bless all of Israel. It will go down into every valley and so on. They're looking forward to the day when that will take place. Uh, when the Messiah comes. What a fascinating picture because Jesus Christ is right there. It will just be in just a few weeks that the soldier, after Jesus Christ dies on the cross, will pierce his side and water and blood will come out. And Jesus Christ as being the sacrifice on the altar for our sins is the, it opens up the door for this living water to flow and, and fill up all of the, the rivers, all of the barrenness of Israel, all the barrenness of our hearts. He fills all of it up and brings it out to all of the people. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, cries out when it's quiet. The, the, the noise comes down after reading those psalms, and Jesus cries out now, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow, Jesus takes over the whole feast. We're talking about a lot of people there. And in that silent moment, Jesus brings this whole new meaning to the Feast of Tabernacles. Come to me, and I will provide you with this living water. Now, John gives us commentary on this. Now, John was there at that event. John was there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John was there at the resurrection when Jesus rose from the dead. John was there in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them. John was there when Jesus uh, went up to heaven and was ascended. John was there on Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved. And so he's reflecting now on this, and he's saying, he said these, this thing about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John is looking back and he's saying, this, this uh, celebration that took place and the water and the wine being poured out, just representing this river that would fill up the barrenness of people's lives. That is the Holy Spirit coming because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Wow. I think this is the key, really, to having the deeper and the higher experience with the Lord, is to have this experience with God's Spirit, to, to have the, the power of God's Spirit working in our lives because the Holy Spirit helps us deal. He's that counselor who comes along with us and takes the grace of God, takes the gospel of God and applies it to our lives in very special ways so that we can enjoy the joy today. We can enjoy the peace that the Holy Spirit provides like a river that flows in and through our lives so we can enjoy the, the, the Lord in ways that we never would before. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that we must come in contact with in our lives. We must understand that God comes in to empower us so that we can overpower sin because of God's grace and His Spirit's power. That we can understand what He wants for us and move us forward. We can experience supernatural blessing in our hearts because of the Spirit of God. That's what John is saying here. Wow, what an amazing way to look at this feast and how it's been transformed now because of Christ's coming. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. 
But some said, is the Christ come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Obviously, they don't know that he, that he did come from Bethlehem. They just recognize him as a man from Nazareth. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers, remember the police officers that they sent because they said, go arrest this man? Well, here's the story. It goes on. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. What an amazing picture that would have been. We couldn't do our duty because this guy, you would not believe what he said. <laughs> the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, here's his name, pops up again. This is the guy from John chapter 3 who comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want anybody to see him. And he asks him, how can I be born again? And Jesus tells him, this is the same Nicodemus. It says Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, he's a Pharisee, said to them, does our law judge, there's our word judge again, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, the reality is there are prophets that arise from Galilee. Jonah himself came from Galilee. So I, they, I think that we fall into this challenge in our lives when we start judging of either ignorance, which happens to be the case here, or arrogance because we think we found something that other people don't know and want to talk about it. So we have to use this tool of judging very carefully. It's a tool, an important one. We must have it. We must need it in our lives as we're moving forward but we have to be careful how we use it. But the most powerful message here in this story is that uh, Jesus transforms these feasts, all three of them. He transforms them. And this one in John chapter 7 is how he transforms this story. So John wants to make sure, as he's writing now, looking back on his life, he says, I'm going to make sure I include chapter 7 here. Because chapter 7 is about how Jesus transformed the feast. He wants us to know this so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in him, we might have life in his name. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know that there's this thing inside you that's drawing you to the Lord. And uh, as you experience that, you want to follow the Lord. You want to uh, move toward him. And if, we'd love to pray with you and help you get connected to God in a very personal way. It starts by recognizing that, well, you have sin in your life. And when you recognize the sin, then you realize you need a Savior. And then it just flows from there will help you understand what it looks like in practical terms and pray with you and help you experience Jesus Christ yourself. Would you stand with me? And let's pray together. Lord, your timing is impeccable and to see the, uh, the unfolding of your gospel message, not only in the feasts of the Old Testament, but even in this story here with John and, and uh his brothers wanting to move things along, but Jesus knowing that there is a timetable. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are in control, that there's a timetable, that you are um, monitoring all of that and controlling those things. And, Lord, we know there's a timetable in our own lives, and sometimes we get frustrated that things aren't moving faster than we would like. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us a peace, give us an understanding of your grace in our lives. Lord, we want to trust you. We ask that you give us the power of your Holy Spirit to live this week in a supernatural way. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.